Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about tax-advantaged real estate strategies, a topic that is near and dear to my heart. So I'm very excited that joining me today is Keith Lampy, President and CEO of Inland Private Capital Corporation. Keith, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Andy. Happy to be here. You know, I'm sure plenty of the LPs, family offices, RAAs who listen are already very familiar with Inland. Um, but before we dive in, um, could you provide us with a little bit of background on Inland Private Capital Corporation? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, obviously near and dear to my heart. So Inland Private Capital Corporation is one of the, one of the Inland uh, group of companies. Inland was actually founded uh, well over 50 years ago. Um, Inland Private Capital, about a year and a half ago, celebrated its, its 20th year in the business. So Inland is a vertically integrated uh, organization. We have a lot of different uh, companies underneath the Inland umbrella. Uh, Inland Private Capital or IPC is its largest subsidiary. Um, we have uh, just a, a touch over $12 billion in assets under management. And our focus is in uh, identifying opportunities throughout the, the United States uh, in the various real estate sectors and we package and bring those opportunities to market through the broker dealer and RAA community um, with a, a tax oriented structure, which I, I know we're going to be getting into a little bit. There's there's different tax structures with different uh, investment opportunities, but um, I, again, it's it's uh, it's been a very uh, exciting journey here these past 20 years. Uh, we've dabbled in just about every type of real estate uh, sector you you can imagine. Um, so a lot of experience, a lot of breadth and depth to our uh, to our uh, bench of experience and, and investment expertise, and, and I'm, I'm thrilled to uh, be able to talk more about that today. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think you know Inland has, a, if I could be frank, Inland has a big name in the industry, right? It, and and the longevity that you mentioned, I think, really speaks to that. Um, there's a lot of private equity sponsors out there, you know, good, bad, everything in between, and you know, a, a big part of how LPs, how RIAs evaluate offerings is is based on that track record. So I, I know a lot of RIAs, uh, a lot of industry uh, folks really familiar with Inland. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you guys have just been around a long time. You're you're kind of a, an industry anchor. And, and on that note, you know, Inland is obviously a leader in the DST space. Um, and er, earlier when I said tax advantage investment strategies are near and dear to my heart, I meant that sincerely. Um, and I think a lot of our listeners feel the same way. I know there's a lot of interest in DSTs, um, you know, especially in the past few years. Um, how did Inland originally get involved in the DST space? Yeah, very interesting. Um, you know, DSTs are anchored on a provision in the tax code, uh, Section 1031, right? So uh, investors that are that are oftentimes considering a, a DST or Delaware statutory trust are in the midst of completing a 1031 or tax deferred exchange, um, which is a, a provision in the tax code that's well over 100 years old. I think it's 1921 
when it was uh, originally uh, documented within the United States tax code. And um, so England had, through various investment management vehicles, utilized Section 1031 um, in its in its various investment uh, investment dealings over the course of, say, our first 30 or so years in the business. Um, oftentimes that was you sell one property and you reinvest into another property. So it was a property for property exchange. Um, but as as uh, things kind of unfolded in the early 2000s, we began to get a lot of reverse inquiry from from the investment community, both RAAs, uh, you know, independent broker dealers saying, hey, there's there's a there's a, a new kind of uh, buzz around the ability to securitize a 1031 exchange. And all that means sounds complicated, but all that means is you can buy a property and offer it to investors where, whereby they come in, they complete their 1031 exchange, and they own a fractional interest in that piece of real estate as opposed to owning it outright. Um, so there was various uh, industry groups that, that gathered, uh, you know, submitted, submitted white papers and, and, and legal um, th- theories and thesis to, uh, to the IRS to, to get them to opine on to what extent this this structure could work, and we were we were one of the uh, one of the pioneers in that in that arena. We were very active in making sure that we had uh, a, a bona fide solid structure that, that was going to pass muster under audit. Um, and and so through that reverse inquiry, it kind of gave us a pulse on a, an offshoot to a market that we were already very familiar with. And, uh, and and so that's that's really how we got our start. We we sponsored our first investment offering. Um, in, in a multi-owner 1031 exchange vehicle back in uh, 2001. And we took kind of a very measured, cautious approach. We really, we, we knew there was demand, but we didn't really appreciate how much. Uh, so that first offering came out, we fully subscribed in you know, like in a couple hours. And, uh, you know, that wow. served as kind of that a first- A couple hours, I uh, mean- it was, it, it, was, uh, it was something. Uh, and, and I think that's really where we said, okay, there's there's demand. There's there's certainly interest from investors, and that was the the building block that we we used to kind of first building block to to sort of scale our our company into what it what it is today. So you know, back then, I always I, I kind of joke it was um, it was really more of an idea than a business. Um, but very quickly, um, you know, we were able to leverage the the depth and breadth of, of inland and and all the the financial resources and, and human capital resources that that the Inland Group brought to the table, and it allowed us to, uh, to to sort of slowly but surely institutionalize what what at at the beginning was really kind of a cottage industry. Yeah, that's interesting. I knew that Inland had a long history in the DST space. I didn't know that y'all actually helped create the space, even you know working in the in the way that you described at the very beginning. So. Um, yeah, talk about OG. I mean, you guys helped create the DST. It sounds like um, how I, I guess the, the DSTs have been so hot in the past couple of years, but it sounds like the very first product, the very first year they were around, even they were fully subscribed within hours, I guess. <laughs> has the space, has it kind of gone through ebbs and flows in interest or has it been a, a pretty consistent interest? You know, throughout those those two or so decades, it, there there have been ebbs and flows. Of course, I, I think in those early days, there it was a, there was a supply and demand disconnect. Right, there was a lot of demand, but it was a newly forming industry, so there really wasn't a lot of product supply out there per se to kind of 
keep up with and track demand. But if you think about a tax deferred exchange, it's it all starts and sort of revolves around another transaction happening. Mm-hmm. So in periods of of growth um, and appreciation, you're going to see you're going to see an uptick in demand because more more property owners are selling highly appreciated real estate and and seeking a replacement property through Section 20, uh, 1031 to kind of go into. Um, so we saw a pretty consistent upward trend industry-wide as well as within inland leading into the financial crisis. As you can imagine, uh, 2008, 2009, things really kind of tapered off a little bit. And then leading into, as we sit here today, we've seen a, a consistent upward trend uh, with the exception of 2020, just given the, the uncertainty around uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, we've, we've seen uh, steady growth. The, the, the main point to make there, though, is you kind of observe what's going on industry-wide. Our business is very much a play on demography. And that was a big part of the investment thesis in getting into this business. Mm-hmm. A lot of property owners buying and selling their own assets uh, outside of uh, any, any sort of interaction with their financial advisor or intermediaries. They, they a rental property, a three flat that they maybe actively managed. And as we looked at the baby boomer cohort, we yep. saw a demand from that subset where it, it was time to sell the asset part ways with day-to-day management. But then when they looked at the tax bill, they would face if they just liquidated, it was it was pretty onerous and in some instances uh, untenable. So, so that's it's, uh, where- hey, I'm, I'm age 65. I'm ready to play some golf, maybe travel to Europe, see the world. I don't want to deal with the three T's anymore. That's uh, right. I- I wanted to be an LP and let someone else deal with all the management headaches. You nailed it. You nailed it. So that's what the Securitized 1031 Exchange industry really accomplishes is it's a passive ownership vehicle Mm -hmm. uh, for that that investor making that lifestyle decision to kind of transition out of active management into passive management. And that that really started in the early 2000s. But we've really seen here now having almost a little over two decades under our belt. We've seen that that investment thesis play out and, and be proven. Time and time again, just just seeing the uh, the investor appetite and demand that that uh, has been in growth mode here for for quite a while now. That's interesting that you mentioned. You know, I, I, obviously, real estate transactions slowed way way down the financial crisis two thousand eight two thousand nine, and they slowed down again at the you know the beginning of the pandemic when the lockdowns and all that. But then it seemed like in twenty twenty one, the DST space just really exploded. And I mean, you know, you talked about that long-term trend upwards, but especially in 2021 or maybe even the early part of this year, offerings would be closing so quickly, opening and closing so quickly. Has, you know, was that just a factor of, you know, a a market that had seen incredible growth, you know, investors wanting to lock in those gains um, by exiting their properties, you know, it, it seemed like there was another sort of supply and demand imbalance, like you identified in the early days. Was was that yeah. the case last year? A little bit. I think there was some pent up demand from 2020. You know, there were there were a, a number of of would would be or would have been transactions that just that just didn't materialize in 2020. So as the economy and and I think generally investors felt that the the economic climate kind of found its footing. Uh, in a post-COVID or, or you know existing COVID era, um, there certainly w- there were winners and losers from a sector perspective throughout that right. that time frame, um, and and 
you know, there was a, a belief that, okay, there are certain sectors that make sense and are still really make a lot of uh, sense to invest in long-term. That's when we kind of saw a lot of, a lot of folks climb out from underneath their desks, start to transact, start to, you know, start to move the path forward in terms of achieving their investment objectives, getting out of active into passive. And then there was another trend that we saw industry-wide and that, that was a lot of those, those transactions that would have gone full cycle in 2020, those were put on hold. So we saw a lot of full cycle activity, which you know, I always I always really like that to point that out. It, it serves as vindication for the investment structure. It shows, it shows our market that this investment structure really does work. Uh, investors can come into these pro- products, uh, it, accomplish their, their various goals and make money on the back end, which is, mm-hmm. which is of obviously critical importance to, to any investment manager in the space. So a lot of full cycle activity with low interest rates, uh, you know, finding, finding asset appreciation and kind of harvesting the gains from some of the, some of the existing products. It was a culmination of many of those factors that really, I think, catapulted the industry into record setting sales in, in 2021. Yeah, absolutely. Record setting sales. I mean, I saw some of the data from um, Robert A. Stanger and company that they publish, but it, it seems like it slowed down a little bit in the second half of this year. I mean, obviously higher interest rates is just is going to uh, decrease transaction activity across the whole commercial real estate market. <clears throat> you know, are I guess are, are couple questions. Are you seeing the DST activity slow down? And, and if so, are offerings staying open for longer or are there just fewer offerings coming to market? I think it's the, the market is still kind of going through a period of, of uh, I don't want to say dislocation, but, but certainly there is a, a, a softening of transaction volume across the board, which is of course going to affect the trajectory of capital raise throughout our space. Mm-hmm. Um, when I take it kind of year to year, we touched on 21, 22 is actually industry-wide going to be a, another record setting year. So, so calendar year 2022 will surpass 2021 levels. What's interesting is a lot of that was front end loaded, let's say for six months of this year. And now we've started to see industry sales soften a bit. Um, obviously the calendar year 22, we've, we've seen tremendous, uh, pressure on, on, uh, you know, with, with inflation in mind, uh, the, the trajectory of rising rates, that's affected transaction volume, not only for, te- for prospective investors that are looking to sell their existing holdings, but also for investment managers. As we were out there looking, looking for opportunity, we have to factor in what, what's occurring in the capital markets. And real estate is interesting. It, it anchors on buyer and seller psychology coming together. So a seller overnight isn't going to reprice their assets and say, oh, well, because of rates, it's worth $10 million less. I, I, I get it. I'm still going to sell. So I think there's, there, there's a little bit of a lock-in effect that's, that's occurred this year. Transaction volumes will be low. I think there's a lot of investors, uh, even in the institutional realm, that'll say, well, if, if, if I can't get my price, I'm going to hang on mm-hmm. um, and, and not sell. And so I think our, our market is kind of sorting through a lot of that right now. And I would say by, if I had to make a projection, 2023 will probably be uh, more muted compared to 21 and 22, but but the trajectory is still is still reasonably strong, providing a lot of support. So you know, growth is all relative, and I think uh, I think 23 will still be a, a pretty exciting year for for the industry. Yeah, it's interesting because in the in the macro you know CRE market, there's 
plenty of headwinds, you know, higher interest rates, higher inflation, but so many players and not everyone, but, but a lot of investors, asset managers are in a position of strength because a lot of them have locked in favorable long-term debt financing. A lot of them are sitting on massive capital gains, you know, of the, of their assets. And even if, even if 10% of those paper gains, um, you know, get rolled back, they're still broadly in a position of strength. So it does, it does feel very different than like a 2008, 2009. Oh, uh, night and day, night and day. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It, we, inflation is the buzzword, right? Of 2022. And yeah. generally speaking, hard assets, real estate assets perform, are, are one of the best performers in an inflationary environment, right? Because you, you're thinking about replacement costs. It costs more to build. Um, right. Landlords have an opportunity to push rents upwards. So the operating fundamentals on our portfolio are some of the best we've seen on record. Yet we're seeing sales soften, right? So it really is very different from the, uh, from the Black Swan event of 2009 and obviously you know, the, the pandemic, uh, at least the early onset of the pandemic had its own effects. So uh, performances is on the upward trend. And I think that does provide some element of comfort to those investors that continue to find their footing and transact and, and are hopefully looking for on a, on a go forward basis, some, some value that maybe wasn't there uh, in, in prior years. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay. So we've, we've talked about the 1031 exchanges and DSTs. I want to turn to a, a a different page, I guess, of the tax code to, to section 721. So we recently had Keith Nelson on the show where we discussed section 721 exchanges. Uh, we also discussed upreads in general. Um, that was episode 76. So I'll, I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. But you know, speaking broadly, I guess as like an LP, as as a as an everyday real estate investor, how would you compare a 721 exchange? to a 1031 in terms of, you know, pros and cons or, or which, which strategy might be more appropriate or which product might be more appropriate to certain types of investors? No, it's a good question. Uh, you know, the, the 721 and 1031 are two provisions within the tax code, right? So we, as you said, we covered 1031, uh, seven, uh, section 721 is basically a provision that allows uh, real estate investment trusts an opportunity to buy a property contribute the property into an operating partnership, which is effectively underneath the, the real estate investment stru uh, trust structure, and allow that contribution to occur tax deferred to the property owner. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a, it's, it's a way to do a tax deferred exchange, become an operating partner in a more broadly diversified fund or real estate investment trust, enjoy all the benefits of diversification, uh, potential liquidity that, that that particular REIT maybe offers, um, which is very different from a, just a conventional or traditional 1031, where you, you, you maybe buy into and own a fractional interest in a very specific piece of real estate or specific portfolio of real estate, right? Um, it's it's a become of growing interest here in, in recent years. So as we kind of compare and contrast, um, what 1031 investors like in, in, a, in a pure play fashion is they like the ability to swap to you drop, right? That's a buzzword in our term. Right. What that means is I'm going to do a tax deferred exchange into my property. I'm going to own a fractional interest in that property. And when that property sells, I'm going to have the ability to do a subsequent 1031 exchange or cash out and pay my tax. I'm going to have optionality. In a 721, it is an end game, 
So your, 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 your asset is being contributed to the, the operating partnership in, in the real estate investment trust. And when you convert those operating partnership interests to REIT shares and ultimately sell your stock, you do, no, you do not have the ability to do a subsequent tax deferred exchange. So you know, we've seen an uptick in adoption in that arena. It's kind of looked at as an end game uh, for estate planning purposes. Now, the positive is it gives investors a little bit more uh, personalized sightline to liquidity, right? So instead of having to wait for your asset to sell in order to make that decision as to whether or not to do a, a 1031 or to, to cash out, investors that own operating partnership interests in a REIT can kind of make that election on their own, on their own time. Um, the way the tax code is written, it, it still allows for a step up in cost basis upon death. So if you're an investor, maybe with that profile where you're you're looking at your hold period and you're thinking this this may be my last my last tax deferred exchange, and I want to I want to pass a more liquid theoretically more liquid asset along to my heirs. That's where where the uh, Section 721 product may may be uh, a better fit for for that particular client. And then obviously you've got you know all, all the benefits of broader diversification, both on a sometimes a sector uh, basis, sometimes a geographic basis. You know a, a REIT is oftentimes going to be a larger uh, provide a more broad snapshot of of performance throughout the real estate market, whereas a, a conventional 1031 is, is is more anchored on the specific dynamics around uh, around that particular piece of real estate. Yeah, that's a good point. So in a DST, it's fractionalized, but I still have that individual asset risk. Whereas with a REIT, it's generally going to be a diversified pool of assets. You know, one other aspect that comes to mind. And, and I get the thing, you know, swap till you drop, but a REIT could also, you know, have an almost indefinite uh, life cycle, I suppose. So, you know, in, in theory, I could 721 into a REIT at age 40 and just stay in that REIT for 30 years or something. But what about strategy? Because, you know, one, I don't want to say complain, one, one limitation I suppose I'd identify with DSTs, and this is also true of, of qualified opportunity funds is these wrappers can essentially only hold certain certain types of assets with certain types of strategies, right? So in the opportunity zone world, you see mostly ground up development. And from DSTs, from what I understand, you know, with the seven deadly sins and, and all the, the restrictions, they tend to be stabilized assets without uh, a lot of opportunity for like value add or, or anything like that. So does a 721 exchange and an upread, uh, you know, potentially give you more strategies on, on the menu, so to speak? It depends. Yeah, it, it might. Um, it depends on the underlying uh, strategy of that particular read and then what its what its focus or underlying focus will be. Um, I'd say most real estate investment trusts are income oriented. So there there is going to be a heavy weighting toward stabilized assets that are generating regular regular distributions uh, on behalf of, of clientele, more, in, more heavily weighted toward income as opposed to, to ground up related growth. But a REIT could certainly uh, implement a, a value add strategy or have a, have a sleeve or a subsection of its uh, asset allocation um, that, that gives uh, investors a little bit more in the way of growth potential. Um, at the end of the day though, strategy is, uh, strategy is the whole ballgame. Um, one of the things I feel like we've really in my private capital really pride ourselves on is being able to read the market and execute on a broad array of strategies, right? 
what, what we were buying in 2015 isn't what we're buying today. Um, and having that ability to sort of pivot and, and maintain a nimble investment focus with macroeconomic headwinds or tailwinds, whichever way you're looking at it, um, in mind is, is this the key to success. And I've seen a lot of investor investment managers that in some instances you could make the case, hey, they stick to what they know and they only transact in one specific area of, of real estate. I've always subscribed to positioning our firm to transact in, in, in a variety of different segments, um, even in areas where we're not vertically integrated. So we do have uh, joint venture partnerships with certain types of uh, sectors that allow us access to those investment vehicles and, and give our, our investment uh, management team an opportunity to identify the assets that we believe in at, the, at this moment in time, given, given our forward-looking outlook on, on the economy as a whole. So strategy is a, is a big part of whether, whether you're in a DST or, or in, a, in a REIT vehicle, I mean, that's, that, that has to be factored in to the investment thesis. I absolutely agree with that. And, you know, you mentioned one thing, I mean, I have to ask this as a follow-up to, to the degree that you're able to share, you mentioned, you know, Inland's pivoting away from like since 2015, 2016, pivoting maybe into some different sectors or strategies now. So to the extent that you're able to share that, do you want to talk a little bit about, about what you're pivoting away from and, and what you're pivoting to? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, happy to. We, um, We've really, uh, I'd say for the past five or so years, have begun leaning more heavily into alternative asset categories, right? Um, meaning non-traditional. Your traditional food groups are uh, retail, office, industrial, and uh, resident multifamily. Um, we're still very active in multifamily. I like that sector because it does give us that, that opportunity to consistently reset rents, which is incredibly important. Uh, as we find ourselves in an inflationary period. And our, uh, one of the point I made earlier about some of the best performance on record applies to, to the multifamily sector as well. Uh, but that said, uh, we've also seen great opportunity when you're thinking about rising interest rates, inflation, and the potential for, for a, you know, a looming recession or at least slowing economic growth. Um, we've pivoted very heavily into alternative segments being healthcare related assets, self storage assets, and education related assets in the student housing sector. The reason we've seen great opportunity in those segments of the market is they anchor on demographic driven demand. Meaning if you're, whether you're in a up market or down market, these are, demand is pervasive because they're needs-based. They're needs-based investments. And this has been a battle-tested uh, investment strategy and thesis uh, through two, two black swan events. These are sectors that proved to be more resilient and, and preserve capital during the financial crisis of 2008 and 9, uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Yet they also offer tremendous growth opportunity in an up market where you have regular opportunity to reset rents, uh, reprice your asset uh, accordingly. So um, those are the three key areas we, we're hyper-focused on at the moment. It's not an easy business on, across the board to get into because these tend to be more fragmented uh, markets, meaning they're, they're not as easy to asset, access. They're not as broadly available. So you have to uh, align yourself with the right uh, operating partners. And, uh, and, and, and it takes time. It takes time and, and hard work and energy, which is why it's not done by, by everybody. But 
Um, I think when you when you establish critical mass and scale, you're able to kind of deliver that that investment thesis to investors. It's it, it presents a pretty compelling opportunity, irrespective of what your concerns are, um, because again, these these just tend to be more resilient, steady performers. Um, if history is any indication of of what we might see here on a long term forward looking basis, so um, those are areas we, we we see a lot of excitement around. Um, my comment on operating fundamentals. You know, there, there's been uh, record-setting uh, demand for for uh, student housing, by example. Enrollment trends in, in many of the large Power Five universities. Enrollment's the highest it's been on record, uh, and and supply of student housing product, for example, was choked out during the pandemic. Everybody was worried about remote learning, and and that that concern was sort of debunked, and 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 we've come out the other side. So, growing enrollment, record demand means great opportunity to push push rents in an outsized fashion. Uh, we saw the self-storage sector obviously benefit from, from the dislocation in the marketplace and, and past 24 months have been some of the best on record. And in the healthcare related space, uh, I mean, that, that sort of speaks for itself, but, but both in the medical office arena, which has consistently outperformed corporate office, uh, as well as the, uh, the, the senior living segment of the market, we've seen pent up demand. Doors were closed in senior living communities during COVID. So wait lists yeah. were sort of growing. We've started to see the, the green shoots of that. And I think with an aging population, again, all anchored on demographic driven uh, demand, you know, we, we see that as having a, a, a pretty bright uh, long-term opportunity. Yeah. You know, it occurs to me, all the sectors that you mentioned, I mean, healthcare is a unique one from the past couple of years because you can't, you can't shut down healthcare, right? It, even during a pandemic, we, you can't right. shut down healthcare, uh, you know, the, the self-storage tends to be almost counter-cyclical, but it, I get, it also grows during times of economic growth. It, it seems to just never stop growing. And, you know, we've had some issuers and sponsors in the self-storage space on the show. Um, one in particular that is, you know, sort of rolling up assets in the secondary markets. And as you said, it's very, very fragmented and it can be harder to access. Is that an area where you partner with another operator or does inland like have a, a division that you know is, is directly managing these assets yeah great question so self-storage is an area where we've we've outsourced uh management um our acquisitions are all still done in-house so we identify opportunity through uh our through inland real estate acquisitions but then we have a a, a sleeve of uh different operating partners uh two of which are public to the uh, well-heeled public reads and then we've also got a couple of private operators that depending on geographic location, depending on the underlying metrics and who kind of has a presence and a, a pulse on that particular market, will outsource property management responsibility. Um, and that's something that's worked incredibly well for us. And, and it has really allowed us to scale that business uh, pretty tremendously here over the past handful of years. Interesting. So so you're you know, maybe outsourcing parts of it, but it sounds like you still do the underwriting in-house. And you know, I wanted to ask about underwriting a little bit. So I'm just reading from my notes here. Um, I know that, you know, Inland has what, 12 billion or, or more in AUM, over 300 private placements completed, like, wow, 300 private placements. So for, from an LP's point of view or an RIA who might be evaluating different sponsors, and, and this really applies to any product, whether, you know, DST or, or otherwise, uh, you know, how should an LP or an RIA look at, at underwriting that, you know, Obviously, this is something that some sponsors, some asset managers do better than others. Yep. 
Yeah, well, it's, it's a critical component to, uh, to, to evaluating any, any uh, investment opportunity, whether it's real estate or, or the like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess I'd start by saying, as, as investment managers, we know that the, the more rosy expectations that we put forth, uh, higher returns, higher IRRs, that, that's going to be more compelling, right? But that's not always the right path forward. And, and we've really anchored on uh, setting expectations appropriately. Um, and that, well, sorry to interject that that's where I'm like a company like Inland. It's not your first rodeo. If you've been around, right. you know, three, four, five decades, you've seen yeah, right. many, many multi market cycles. So sorry, go on. No, no. I mean, that's, that's the point in a nutshell. I mean, there's no, no one offering is worth reputational damage to, to an established investment management firm. So, you know, we, we believe we're putting forth reality when you factor in all the different assumptions we're making we anchor and subscribe to you know various uh nodes of, re- of uh, research throughout the market but we also have our own operating performance and our own portfolio to kind of apply our our, our rationale behind a, an assumption that we'll make whether it relates to expense growth rent growth vacancy in a specific market you know all that these these are these are best efforts uh assumptions that are made and you can make a re- you can make a real estate deal look better or worse by you know pulling a lever or turning a knob sure. with with relative ease. So right. it's it's not so much about presenting and putting our best foot forward to show how great an investment could be. We like to be more measured. We like to put forth numbers that we believe are are substantiated, and and it could absolutely be better. But so much of our our success in this business has been anchored on under projecting, hopefully putting ourselves in a position to deliver the performance that we set expectations around and hopefully do better, uh, you know, as, as time goes by. So um, that in a nutshell, I mean, is, is what, you know, that's underwriting 101, right? And I think there's, there's a lot of different ways to come to the conclusion as to whether or not an, a, a property is, it, it makes sense at a certain value or doesn't. Um, I, I, you know, we're, we're all doing the same thing. We're looking for long-term value and we're looking for opportunities that hopefully will make investors money in the back end. Um, but underwriting, underwriting starts your, your, your cash flow projections. It's going to set the tone for your potential total return projections. And you, you don't want to get too close to the razor's edge in that regard and, and then fall short. That's, that's not, uh, not going to be a, a good, a good move from a reputational standpoint for any investment manager. So that's, that's kind of the, the theory that we've consistently subscribed to, and it's it's served us well over the years. Yeah, you know, I really like that answer. It wasn't um, didn't get into a lot of technical, you know, numbers, models, anything like that. It's more a philosophy or almost personality of of underwriting and that that long term mindset of we're a sponsor who was around 10, 20 years ago. We're still going to be around the next ten to twenty years, and so we're thinking, how does this underwriting look in five, ten years if maybe things don't go as well as planned, you know, you know, that that's just a different, a little bit of a different philosophy than maybe an, an upstart with, you know, a value add, you know, uh, or, or whatever. So yeah, I, I really like that philosophy though. And, and it's, it's, um, it's interesting because, you know, I kind of come from the startup world, uh, where, where there's constantly like, you know, the, the tech startups, it's always like the next thing. It's, it's always the younger, fresh tech companies that, you know, sort of have the buzz. 
Um, but I think especially with asset management and, and real estate, um, I, personally, I want to invest with managers that have seen multiple market cycles, not even just one. And I mean, they're, they're, frankly, there are some asset managers that haven't even seen one full market cycle, right? But but two, three, four, um, you know, even even having seen high interest rates or or high inflation, there's a lot of companies that they weren't even a twinkle uh, in anyone's eye the last time we had high inflation or high interest rates, right? If you think about it, it's it's interesting to sort of reflect on, right? I mean, for for the past two plus decades, for the most part, we've seen uh, we've seen real estate investment management occur in a in a low cost of capital, low interest rate environment. Now rates are trending back up to you know peak levels uh, in in you know the the last market cycle, but um, but if they if they keep trending, it, you're right. I mean, you you almost have to look back you know, three plus decades. And that's something that, again, so much of our success has been anchored on, on not only what we've built within income private capital, but anchoring on the, the experience and uh, firsthand, uh, firsthand kind of school of hard knocks that, that the Inland Group has gone through and that our principals have seen. And it, it, it definitely helps to shape our, our firm's perspective. And, um, and, and you, you use every tool at your disposal. And that's certainly one we've, uh, we, we continue to, to benefit from it, so. Yeah, the School of Hard Knocks is probably the, the most valuable diploma that you're going to earn as an asset manager. Okay, I know we're running short on time, uh, but I wanted to ask one more kind of broad question, which is just, you know, you mentioned you see activity probably likely to slow down next year. And we've talked about, you know, higher inflation, higher interest rates. Um, <clears throat> from my standpoint, it doesn't seem like... Uh, asset prices have really corrected all that much, you know, give, especially given where interest rates are. And most real estate transactions, you know, are going to involve some debt. So, you know, it, the fact that Inland kind of can, can go anywhere with all these different strategies, all these different sectors, that's, that's, I think that gives you a good vantage point um, to answer this. Maybe honestly, is, is there any sector or strategy that is truly a good value right now? Because I get other LPs that kind of ask me that, that, you know, almost they're, they're sitting on dry powder and, and they're ready to invest in, you know, private placement offerings or individual assets or whatever the case may be. But it's just sort of this generalized sense that, that, you know, nothing is really represents strong value right now. Do you think that's the case or, or do you see opportunity? Well, there's, I don't think there, uh, you know, the textbook might imply that with the the level of the cost of capital at the beginning of the year and the cost of capital at the end of 2022 should create massive dislo dislocation and asset value should be, you know, 20% down. All right. I'm just throwing out a number. Um, most of the time when folks talk about value, they're talking about cap rate, right? What cap rate can I buy an asset for? What that starting point of an analysis sort of ignores is what type of rent growth, what type of what type of, of NOI growth was achieved during that same period, and in many of the areas that we're focused on, mainly with it with inflation and and potentially being well positioned to to weather a, a recession in mind, a lot of those assets have held their value not because cap rates haven't corrected, but because the top line and, and bottom line NOI are are far and away better than they were at the beginning of the year because of the opportunity to push rents. So. We, you know, I think that there will be some, some institutional selling, just, just you know, firms shoring up their balance sheet, 
maybe forced to sell. We haven't seen a whole lot of that yet. But I think for every seller that falls into that category, there'll be a lot of sellers that say, hey, you know, this time around, we used conservative leverage. We're, we're not under stress. We're not under distress. We don't have to sell. And so I think that there's probably going to see uh, less in the way of transaction volume. And that was ultimately the point I made earlier. Um, I think high quality assets, you know, in irreplaceable locations with, with a lot of the things we talked about, you know, outsized demand and muted supply. I think those assets are going to are going to continue to hold their value, even if we see uh, interest rates continue to trend upward. And and uh, the point I'm, I'll ultimately make here, and I'll end with, is you can't look at cap rate as the ultimate indication of value. It's what happens next, and you want to be right about what assumptions you're making that happen next. We look at the market through a long-term lens. You know, average hold period for a majority of our products are anywhere between you know, five to seven years, we actually set expectations longer. And, you know, I think if, if you take that long duration, you know, how does the world look over the course of the next decade kind of mindset, it, it helps to sort of normalize how best to, to think that through. And so that's ultimately the, the lens we look at the world through and, and then what we kind of anchor our investment thesis accordingly. I love that. That was a very insightful, you know, the, the, the cap rate is just, it's just one point in time. And, and obviously inland with your track record and your longevity, you know, having that longer term perspective, I think is hugely valuable, even for individual investors to try and adopt some of that long-term mindset. Keith, I, I can't thank you enough for joining the show today, um, and providing your insights, uh, a lot of really interesting tidbits, uh, including some things I didn't know about the origins of the DST program. Where can our viewers and listeners go to learn more about Inland Private Capital? Our website um, is is probably the best, most comprehensive way to, to learn more. Uh, that's www.inlandprivatecapital.com. Uh, there is contact us information if if you wanted to reach out. You know, any member of the team, happy to uh, happy to discuss. Uh, you know, kind of our perspectives uh, as well. So, um, I, I'd, I'd probably direct you to the website. Sounds great, and and I'll make sure to link to that website in our show notes. Uh, which are always available at altsdb.com slash podcast. Keith, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.